0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. My friends, it's great to see you on, uh, on yet another day of the recording The Mocking Cast. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, I've got a little bit of a head cold, so apologies in advance for sounding a little nasally, but I understand that everyone basically has got head colds. Is that right, Sarah?
1: Yeah, well, everyone. Like, if if you're not sick, your kids are sick, and everyone's probably yes. sick.
0: Like, that's the season we're in, right? Yeah, it's almost like the
1: week we're in. It feels yeah. like it's,
0: it's all concentrated in yeah. this part of February. What about you, RJ?
2: I'm a solid fine. I'm going to go for fine. Nice. I'm gonna, I'm doing, yeah, you know, I'm doing okay. I'm gonna sort of trying to, you know... Be mindful, stay even, let the thoughts come and go. You know how it is. It could be yeah. better, it could be worse. Exactly. Yeah. There, but Hey, I'm with you guys. So <laughs> praise the Lord. Mm. It's, a kind of, it's a gray day in Houston, it's raining. You know, it's, it it's, it's, a, it's a frigid like 58 degrees. Mm-hmm. So just trying to stay
0: indoors. and Frigid, know, there's snow right on the too. ground here and there's children indoors and it's driving <laughs> Ooh, us all crazy. That sounds nice. maddening. Yeah. But let, let me ask you guys something. Have you evangelized anyone today?
1: Um, I did mention the Lord on an elevator, but that may have been more uh, in a corrective tone towards my eight-year-old than it was to uh, tell the man in the elevator about Jesus. Um, RJ, I mean, I haven't showered today, much less evangelized. RJ, I'm gonna say, who knows? Maybe, I don't. I don't. It could be. You know,
2: me. Maybe just my practicing the ministry of presence. You know, so anything uh, could
0: happen when you're practicing the
2: ministry. It's very
1: millennial of you. Yeah,
2: it is. I'm wearing my collar, I'm strolling Mm -hmm. around, I'm I'm being pleasant to people, and who knows if hearts are converted. You know, maybe (laughs)
0: you've got a very expansive pneumatology. I appreciate that. Um, But uh, less so, perhaps, than our millennial brothers and sisters, the news breaking this past couple weeks, or at least the, the current hand wringing in the Christian world, is that nearly half. 47% 47% of practicing Christian millennials, meaning churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives, believe that evangelism is wrong. Now, that's by the way, that's not ex- exactly true because you read what, this, what, the, um, what the data, what the poll here is. It says at least they're, they're more than twice as likely as their parents and grandparents to say that it's, quote, wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Try Basically to try to convert someone, I think is what, is what that, that's the understanding of evangelism here that's being rejected. Uh, Christianity Today, Kate Shelnut reports that while the statistic could easily bolster stereotypes of a distracted and increasingly unaffiliated generation, the minority of millennials who have stayed active in their churches also show higher markers of commitment in other areas, as well as a savvier sense of re- the religious pluralism and diversity they are raised around. But, listen to this practicing Christian millennials were twice as likely as Gen X and four times as likely as boomers to agree with the statement, if someone disagrees with you, it means they're judging you.
2: Which is probably true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe (laughs) they're just really wise. (laughs) Maybe it's just
2: true. Anyway, because everyone is judging everyone at all times.
0: Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, I'm just reading some people on Twitter and various other places, and they're even quoted in the article saying that it doesn't. you can't pin the belief that evangelism is wrong on Facebook, distraction, disenchantment, or recession. This is Samuel James. The data here strongly suggests that Christian millennials are being catechized by their colleges, not churches, meaning they're echoing a sort of a doc, dogma of um, kind of diversity initiatives uh, that you encounter uh, or intersectionality. Um, but then uh, she ends the article by saying, Younger folks are tempted to believe instead that, quote, If we just live good enough lives, we can forgo the conversation entirely, and people around us will almost magically come to know Jesus through our good actions and selfless character. This style of evangelism is becoming more and more prevalent in a country, in a culture constantly looking for the fast track and simple fix. Now, I, for one, am always a little skeptical about these reports because I don't think anyone uh, does much evangelism of the sort of explicit kind. It's never, uh, it's like fundraising, you know, you, you, could, you can talk all you want about how virtuous it is, but it's uh, the people that have that gift uh, almost can't not evangelize, and I'm talking about explicitly, but the ones um, for whom it's forced or awkward, uh, that's just basically 99% of people but um what do you guys think do you think uh are you concerned about this do you think uh that you don't trust the statistics do you do you think it's indicative of something larger or are we just blowing smoke here
1: i'm pretty defensive about this um to be honest with you i mean i i'm one of those people that is in constant church conversations where people are at least 20 years older than me and they complain about millennials and then i like have to awkwardly tell them that yes by most measures i fit into that category mm-hmm. um I mean, I'm sort of that in between, you know, I was born in 82, but it's, uh, so I read this, I had two thoughts. The first one was maybe evangelism is the wrong word right i yeah. mean i i'm not sure that they're interpreting it the way that the that the study's interpreting it yeah um i think and and i also am like is it is it so bad that people respect other people's religions <laughs> like i'm like is I, a little bit and now and i definitely don't think that like millennials are you know the greatest generation to ever live but i do think that there's like a um a niceness that's been trained into us, a respectfulness of other people that are different, that has been like a part of our upbringing that there's like this backlash against, you know what I mean? Sometimes in articles like this and I'm like, wait, I'm trying to, it's like, it's like when they're like millennials have destroyed the housing market or millennials don't buy new cars or diamonds anymore. And I'm like, well, I mean, it's not so bad. You know what I mean? Like we can't afford the houses. Why are we buying new cars? You know? And, and diamonds are, you know, you know, covered in blood or whatever the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio is about. I don't know. So yeah, I mean, I just, I kind of, I have this like whole thing where I also wonder that, so that quote at the end was very interesting to me. Can you read that? I'm trying to pull it up. What she said. Uh,
0: that if we just live good enough lives, we can right. go the conversation entirely. And people around us will almost magically come to know Jesus. Yeah. Through our good actions and selfless behavior, sort of like preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words, which I think is an apocryphal. Right. Quote, quote from a CC and. Sort right. Of, yeah, well, well, and as Jacob
1: know. Smith says, you always have to use words.
0: <laughs> um, that's <laughs> <And all. laughs> You always have to use words.
1: Right. And you always have to use. I, but I, I like thought that was I was like a little insulted by that. I mean, I know what she means because I know there's this like whole movement on social media that's like. You know, we're all good and we're all nice and that that definitely gets interpreted through this sort of moralistic Christian lens. But I actually know a lot of millennial Christians and a lot of millennial Christians who've returned to church who are drawn to the narrative of sin and redemption. Mm-hmm. And like, that's what they talk about. And that's what they're interested in Um and they they would say i mean the people i know who are of that ilk would say yeah we're not trying to convert people but are we going to tell people that we're broken and that our lives are falling apart and that you know this is the one place we go to hear hope yeah i mean that yeah i mean that's what they say and so i just i so wonder yeah, that about that is like,
0: evangelism yeah. we, we could say yeah
1: yeah so i'm just like wondering about the definition of like what we're calling evangelism
0: yeah cuz they do all agree that witnessing to your faith is extremely important. It's yes. something that Jesus clearly commands. And they people. read the
1: Bible. I mean, did you see that they're reading the Bible more than any other generation. Like, I mean, it's this is a committed group of young Christians, and mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm just hesitant to be like they're doing it wrong, right? Like cereal, you know, right? Yeah. Like, let's talk about cereal, full of carbs. Millennials don't eat it. Like, are they doing it wrong? You know?
0: What about RJ? Speaking of people doing it wrong,
1: <laughs> RJ, do you eat cereal? Uh, I don't eat
2: breakfast. Haven't we been over this? No. Coffee coffee for breakfast, baby. Coffee. Uh, A few different things. Uh, what you guys, as you were talking about evangelism and brokenness, it reminded me of my my high school self, my high school Christian self, who was very much into evangelism, uh, which meant like having arguments with people and trying to argue that quote unquote argue them into the kingdom, and and basically how I was just a lot smarter than they were, and if they were smart as me and as good as me, then they would make the same choices that I'd made. And then I remember I remember distinctly someone in high school describing evangelism, and I think this is attributed to a an Indian Christian whose name escapes me at the moment, but that uh, evangelism was one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Mm-hmm. And that made no sense to me whatsoever. Because I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm no beggar. Yeah. <laughs> I got it going on. You know, was I like, am that, the bread.
0: Exactly. <laughs> pretty
2: much. Pretty much. I was like, this is not compute. Like, that's, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Uh, but now, of course, that makes perfect sense to me. And if that's your approach to evangelism, that it's about weakness, about need, mm. about brokenness, you know, we we preach Christ and not ourselves, you know, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that there's all surpassing power is from God and not from us. Um, you know, that could actually be biblical evangelism, right? Not, not um, you know, even though people may want the quote-unquote super apostles, you know, what we get is Paul instead. We get, we get weakness. And so I like that approach to evangelism. Um, and then, you know, that quote you read about if, we're, if we live good enough lives, people will just come into the church. Maybe, you know, probably not. Like that reminds me of a good friend of mine, um, Shady Anis, affectionately, Slim Shady Anis, who uh, is an Egyptian Christian, went to seminary with him. He is, his father is the archbishop of the Middle East. Um, and he was saying, you know, that a lot of Christians in Egypt, uh, you know, I guess specifically American Christian missionaries think that thing too, that if they just come to Egypt and they just live really devout lives, people will be converted. And he's like, you know what? You're not going to out-holy a super devout Muslim. Like it's just not going to happen. You know, like you're not going to live a life attractive enough that they're going to be like, oh, this person is holier than me. And he said in that context, the only thing that will convert is grace. That's it. You know, for someone who is worn out, who is, you know, following all the rules, following all the laws, praying five times a day, not drinking alcohol, and it's just not enough. And then you say, guess what? Jesus did it for you. And maybe that begins to make some sense. Mm. But the main point I want to make about this article, I found it encouraging, actually, especially the whole judgment thing, you know, that we, um, you kind of mentioned, Dave, because let's face it. For the last generation, far and away, the loudest Christian voices in our culture have been the most judgmental. Yeah, and judgment like that—you know, there's the the there's God's judgment, there's the judgment of the law, but the way that this article talks about judgment, is not part of Christianity. Like, what does Jesus say? Judge not lest ye be judged with the same measure that you use will be used on you and Paul in Rome and Corinth. is like, stop judging each other and just let every person be fully convinced in their own minds, right? Some eat meat, some don't. Some keep the Sabbath, some don't. Like, you know, just do your thing to the glory of God and live at peace with one another and stop judging each other. And so I feel like that is a, that's an aspect of Christianity. They may ca- call it you know college catechesis, but maybe the colleges are right and right. the church is wrong. Right. Like maybe our culture understands what the New Testament is actually saying better than Christians do because what the New Testament is saying is, is radical, right? Um, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Right, he doesn't go at. He, yes, he goes after the Corinthians for like some pretty egregious sin, but it's more about how their sin is ripping apart the community, and not sort of the sin itself. Mm-hmm. So that's that's not a hundred percent right. Someone's going to come back at me about that, but I hope you. You know, people can understand. Like I, am tired of judgmental Christianity, and I'm I'm not even millennial. I think I'm an exennial. My wife mm-hmm. and I, like in, but you were in between. Mm-hmm. But I'm just tired of the judgment. It doesn't work, and it's it's onerous, and it's repulsive. And how about more humility
0: and less judgment? Well that would be great too. I mean I I am I'm, I'm all in favor by the way of people converting. Like I think it's a great <clears throat> yes. thing. Because Absolutely. I'm in favor of myself being converted. I want to be converted in more uh tangible ways. Now do I want to aggressively I don't think you can convert someone to grace with uh violence or of being forced forcing anything no. upon them. And no. so that that those two things they definitely don't compute. But for to tell people about Jesus, I mean I think it's it's true that it, this idea— Idea that people will magically sort of decipher the way that you act and and make their own life decisions on it. I think we're far too self-involved for that. Um, But uh, and for me, it did take hearings from really explicit words and some calls to kind of a decision. But. but then again, it's something you need every day. It's the whole Mockingbird idea. So I, I think it's a primarily a semantic thing that we're talking about. But I also had the experience of going to very secular colleges, a college and... Um, or not a not a very secular college, but a fairly secular college and a very secular uh, high school in which I was aggressively <laughs> convert they were trying to aggressively convert people and that once you've had the experience of that to a, a more i don't know um, worldly agenda um I found the, I've, I had a lot more patience for Christians who trying to convert people because, but if you've never had that experience of being trying to, someone trying to convert you on the other side, uh, you just think Christians are the ones who are doing this and they're the terrible ones. And I don't actually think that's true. I think the marketing is pretty strong, uh, the pressures are pretty strong to uh, agree with each other. Dave Chappelle has that great quote, which I think is worth repeating here. He says, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe, say, or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. I really, I think that's true. He's a wise man. I think that's true. I also think that you're right in saying that, like, millennials are pretty wise in thinking if someone disagrees with you, they're judging you. I mean... <laughs> it's all... I don't know how to hold this all together. Here's, but.
1: here's how you know if someone's judging you. Are they in front of you?
0: Are they breathing? Then they're judging <laughs> yeah. you. Okay? Are they paying any <laughs> attention clear, whatsoever? That's, that's just or, or perhaps they're to the side of you, behind yes. you, to yes. the other <laughs> side. Yes. If they're breathing. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. They're certainly judging themselves. Well, let's move on. Uh, we haven't solved that one, but it's, it's fun to talk about. Uh, this is something, uh, Sarah, this just, just kind of reminds me of something you wrote in Churchy, wonderful stuff about... Um, about both hospice as well as when your friend's parent died. I think what was that? Was uh-huh. it? Yeah, I think it starts out the book. And this is in the New York Times: What to Say and What Not to Say to Someone Who's Grieving. It's uh, it's kind of a column where they ask people, they the readers to sort of tell them. And uh, here's some of the unhelpful things that were that people who are mourning uh, heard. Uh, One woman said my first husband died of cancer when I was 35 and I was 26 and I still recoil when I think of the number of people who said you're young you'll find someone else. Another lady said my only child Jesse committed suicide at 30 and a friend wrote I know exactly how you feel because my dog just died. This is sort of what not to do. But then, you know, the writer of the piece, uh, David Pogue, I think says, To be fair, knowing the right thing to say doesn't come naturally. We're neither born with that skill nor taught it. Our society generally avoids talking about death and grieving. And so he, uh, he then sort of summarizes four rules. The first one is, it's not about you. Too many friends and acquaintances want to talk about how your loss affects them. Like, I didn't visit because I hate hospitals. I don't do hospitals. And one pr- woman responds, well, no one likes hospitals. No one, unless perhaps you're visiting a new baby, do it anyway. Uh, another, another thing you say, people have said, I'm so sorry for your loss uh, to lung cancer. Did he smoke? Or if it was a heart attack, was she overweight? And that translates to you were just trying to find some reassurance that this scary, scary thing won't happen to you. Please stop it. Then there's always the let me know if you need anything, which is it's that suggestion is often an exit line, just a way of escaping like a condolence call. And it puts the onus on the bereft person to be the one to ask for help. Rule number two is that there is no bright side. Uh, So nothing anyone can say is going to cheer you up. So avoid all uh, observations that begin with the word at least, at least, at least they died quickly, you know, that sort of thing. Rule number three, be careful with religion. In support groups for parents, the God never gives you more than you can handle is universally known as one of the cruelest comments for devastated parents to receive, Uh, added Wendy Prentice, whose six-year-old nephew was diagnosed with a deadly cancer. It suggests that the parents are weak for being crushed. It comes across as judgmental and tone-deaf and the loss is very much more than you can handle. And then four, let them feel. Don't tell a grieving person how to feel. Don't say things like stay strong or be strong. Indeed, the most helpful thing anyone ever said to one respondent in her time of loss was, whatever you were feeling and whenever you were feeling it, it's okay. If you're looking for stuff to say, uh, talk about the person who died. It's often people don't want them to be forgotten. So that's a lot of lot of law, a lot of to-dos for you, but it certainly opens a can of worms. You guys are, uh, I think, RJ, you were at the hospital today talking to people. Mm-hmm. Sarah, this is your wheelhouse. What do you guys think? I was
2: skewered a little bit by it because I, I was reading the article on my iPhone as I was walking around the hospitals, and I'd literally just come from a room where I'd said to someone, you know, whatever you need, just let us know. <laughs> and I was like, ugh! <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think... Thankfully, I, I hopefully have a little bit more emotional intelligence than to say a lot of the stuff that's been said here, but I have definitely said some of it, and I definitely have felt the desire to say more of it, but kind of just been like, just keep your mouth shut and listen <laughs> and say you're sorry, you know. Um, but no, it's very, it's, it's very, very true, you know. Um, I think in my experience in those pastoral interactions, you know, silence is golden. Saying you're sorry goes a long way. Giving the people the freedom to feel whatever they're feeling is exactly the right thing. Um, it, it, but it's, it's, also, it's difficult. It's difficult for me to be present with someone who's suffering in a way that uh, kind of, I don't want to say models, but, you know, it's, what you're basically trying to do is bear witness to the fact that God is there. You know, and, and that, that, that even though they can't um, hear him or, or see him, um, that he's there and that he cares and, uh, and that, he, that he's listening. Um, and so it's difficult, it's difficult to do that. Um, so I, I thought this article was, was great and probably something that, you know, everyone who's doing any kind of pastoral care should, should read and reflect, read, mark, inwardly digest, memorize. Um, because, you know, just because it's a law doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> it, it is true. Mm-hmm. So th- that was my reaction.
1: Yeah, I, um, I appreciate what you're saying. I do think people in pastoral ministry should read this because I think it is very valuable. I also want to say, though, here, and Dave, I'm really glad that you said law, because like, even though this is my wheelhouse, by the time I got to the end of this article, I felt like breathing into a paper bag because I was like, oh, my God, like, when have I said those things? And, you know, and and I totally, you know, you can be in ministry your whole life and you still under you're still human. You still understand the impulse to say these things. Um... I don't think you can say the right thing ever in these situations. Mm. I think it is very rare that you say the right thing. So I do want to say that because um, I w- one of the things you know when they they make a whole list of suggest the right thing to say you know and one thing they say to for which we all say is I'm so sorry, which is a fine thing to say. But I that that phrase actually always rings in my head because. You know, the the friend I wrote about in my book, whose dad died when we were 14, um, I w- just basically held her hand for a year afterwards. And in school and, you know, I mean, <laughs> there was a confrontation with a teacher at one point I entered into. I mean, I was very much saw myself as her advocate in the school. Yes. At 14. Oh, I wish I'd been
2: there. I got
1: kicked out of a <laughs> class. Um <laughs> And, which I got kicked out of glasses a lot. That was not an unusual behavior (laughs) pattern for me at all. So, but I remember her saying to me one time, I'm so sick of people tilting their head to the side and telling me they're sorry. They're not sorry. They don't even know what that means that they're sorry. Like, and it was, it was sort of, also like teenage fury, right? About being this 14 year old who'd lost her dad. But it made me realize that even that is not like the best you can hope for is neutral, right? I think that's the best, like you, that you say something that maybe they don't remember is like the best, especially if you're not their priest or their pastor, if you're their priest or their pastor, really try not to say the wrong thing. But But if you're just a friend, no pressure, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. But if you're just a friend, like just try to be neutral. I think that's like the best you can hope for. And I also read this and I was like, let's have a little mercy for the dumbasses. You know what I mean? Because also, like, if you're on, if you're the one that's on the receiving end and somebody close to you has died, people are going to say really dumb stuff to you. Really painful, awful, especially if you've like had a miscarriage or lost a a child they are going to say the dumbest stuff to you and i think the best thing that you can do sometimes is just pray that god would give you like some sort of holy amnesia and you could just forget because it was painful for me to read in this piece and i can't remember it was some woman i think it was that she the woman who was lost twins yeah like it was pregnant with twins and the friend said well you know god just knew you couldn't handle two kids at once or something which is a horrible thing to say but she said it took me years to forgive her and it's like I get that it's a horrible thing she shouldn't have said it I get that but like if there's any way to just say these people are basically have stepped into the middle of my own personal war zone and it's so jarring for them that they're just gonna say real dumb stuff Mm -hmm. and the best thing I can do is just kind of avoid some of them if i know they're especially going to say dumb things and i love them very much and don't want to like lose that love and also just try to forget it i you know i mean is that I maybe that's too much to ask of people in mourning but i also feel like there no one can say the right thing
0: and maybe maybe part of the mourning process is getting mad at people for saying the wrong thing like yeah meaning like it seems yeah. to be a very common yes. uh Process that's people wise. go through, and um, I'd still rather be the person that they got mad at than the person who didn't show up at all. A
1: hundred percent.
0: And uh, better you know, be present than absent.
1: Yeah, that's a part of the reason I don't like these pieces is because they actually discourage people from showing up. Like they think they're not, but I think there is a, a certain element to this, it just scares people more. Yeah, there's
0: a map and if I don't follow right. it, and it feels very precarious. Right. One false move.
1: Right. You just show up. I said that in the book. You show up, you overstay, you're welcome. You eat all their funeral food. Like you stay till it's weird and then you stay even
0: longer. Like that's what you do. Yeah. Well, I guess we, we all, those are moments where everyone's praying. So that's a right. good thing. I think, you know, right. you're praying if you're the person who's doing, dealing with it. Um but speaking of, of, of pain and difficulty and heartache and, of course, and especially of grace and God in the midst of it, there is this unbelievable sermon that um, the author and um, journalist Michael Gerson of the Washington Post wrote. Uh, preached at the National Cathedral last weekend. Now, Sarah, you sent this to me, but also uh, my uh, Paul Walker here in Charlottesville sent it to me. I saw it uh, on every single channel I could, and finally I just uh, succumbed and said, all right, what, what's going on here? And it opens with Gerson, who r- writes some wonderful stuff, um, but I don't think anything really prepared me for this. And he said that he'd been asked to preach a, f- a few weeks prior, earlier in February, but he, uh-huh. he wasn't able to make it because he was hospitalized for depression. And he then goes on to describe what it feels like, and this mental state that you that you sort of succumb to in uh, depression, and, and that kind of clinical hospitalized depression, and where every voice kind of come boils down to everybody hates me. There's no there's no purpose. All of these things, and it's a really a searing um, uh, description of depression. And it's hard to write well about it, but then he sort of goes on and he uh, he sort of uses uh, depression as a metaphor for the human condition period in the same way that sometimes we use addiction as a metaphor for the human condition and for sin. But he's talking about depression and he says, all of us, whatever our natural serotonin level, look around and see plenty of reason for doubt, anger, and sadness. A child dies, a woman is abused, a schoolyard becomes a killing field, a typhoon sweeps away the innocent. If we knew or felt the whole of human suffering, we would drown in despair. The answer to the temptation of nihilism is not an argument, though. It is the experience of transcendence we cannot explain or explain away. It is the fragments of love and meaning that arrive out of the blue. My friend Catherine, when her first child was born, discovered what she calls, quote, a love much greater than evolution requires. I love that. I love much greater so than good. evolution requires. So many good lines in this sermon. Yeah. He, he goes on, and you know, for people who want to I put it up on Mockingbird as we speak, and people can just watch the whole thing, but he goes on to say, Faith, thankfully, does not preclude doubt. It consists of staking your life on the rumor of grace so good. I'll never, I'll never forget that. I'll never
2: forget that. It's like one of the best lines ever.
0: So beautiful. He says, uh, but then he talks about these experiences of transcendence. It's this experience of pulling back the curtain of materiality and briefly seeing the landscape of a broader world comes in many forms. It can be religious and non-religious, Christian and non-Christian, but there is this difference for a Christian believer. At the end of all our striving and longing, we find not a force, but a face. a
1: face. Woo!
0: All language about God is metaphorical, metaphorical, but the metaphor became flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so good. This is evangelism.
0: This sermon this is, sermon is, like is like evangelism, evangelism in the purest yeah, okay. sense. And, it is and, unbelievable. And if you feel you listen to the sermon, you're like, I can't not share mm. it. I can't not share it because it spoke so much to me and it converted me. Um, I want to share it with someone else because conversion is not, we're not tricking someone, you know, it's a Mm -hmm. comfort. That's what's at the, and it's
2: so humble and true and real and, um, yeah, it's Well, let
0: me, let me finish reading here and then we can talk about it. It says, I suspect there are people here today, and I include myself, who are stalked by sadness or stalked by cancer or stalked by anger. We are afraid of the mortality that is knit into our bones. We experience unearned suffering or give unreturned love or cry useless tears. And many of us eventually grow weary of ourselves, tired of our own sour company. I'd urge anyone with undiagnosed depression to seek out professional help. Full stop. There is no way to will yourself out of this disease any more than to will yourself out of tuberculosis. You know, we might add addiction. We might just say sin. Um, But then he says, there are, however, other forms of comfort. Those who hold to the wild hope of a living God can say certain things. In our right minds, as our most sane and solid selves, we know that the appearance of a universe ruled by cruel chaos is a lie and that the cold void is actually a sheltering sky. In our right minds, we know that life is not a farce, but a pilgrimage, or maybe a farce and a pilgrimage, depending on the day. In our right minds, we know that hope can grow within us like a seed, like a child. In our right minds, we know that transcendence sparks and crackles around us everywhere. Many understandably pray for a strength they do not possess, but God's promise is somewhat different, that even when strength fails, there is perseverance, and even when perseverance fails, there is hope, and even when hope fails, there is love, and love never fails. So how do we know this? How can anyone be so confident? Because we are Lazarus, and we live. That last part is a quote of a Chesterton poem.
1: I can't fathom the amount of bravery it took to do this. Like I can't even wrap my head around the amount of bravery and especially to have been hospitalized so recently and hospitalization now for depression. A lot of the times involves, you know, what is modern day electroshock therapy? And I mean, just all these sort of things that you've put yourself through and then to get in front of people and to bear witness to it is so powerful. The other thing I think that this, calls for, and I think it's something that the, especially the the Episcopal Church, our tradition would do well to listen to, is that testimonies matter. Yes. And not big, bold, sexy. We, we have this whole thing in our denomination right now, um, and I'm not trying to get myself in hot water, but where they're doing revivals, and it's big, bold, and sexy kind of stuff. And sexy is the wrong word. That's not a safe church word, but y'all know what I mean. Um, And There's, we had a guy about a year ago at my husband's church who very, you know, accomplished and wealthy and all these things and got diagnosed with horrible, horrible cancer and talked about the helplessness he felt in it. And he met with Josh and he said, I want to get up in front of the church and I want to tell them, I want to tell them what happened to me. And and Josh let him. I mean, like a couple weeks later, Josh got up, said a little bit, this gentleman got up and he wasn't nearly this polished. You know, he didn't quote a poem, but I have to tell you in some ways it was just as compelling to have someone who has been through hell stand up in front of us and talk about what what sustained him. I mean, I, th- I do think that there is so much value in having, having these people in our churches and in our pulpits. Um, so I don't know. Those are the two things that kind of stayed with me.
2: It was hard for me to listen to. Cause I was like, this is such a good sermon. <laughs> like mm-hmm. how, how, you know uh, how is he not in sort of quote unquote full-time Christian ministry? You know, mm-hmm. of course he is, you know, I know what he does for a living, but it was so good. Um, and I thought the same thing you thought, Sarah. You know, so many people have said, uh, I think Fleming Rutledge included, who I I respect tremendously, you know, that you don't ever talk about yourself in oh, a yeah. sermon. You know, she says you that. never use the word I. Or and I me. was like, "Uh-oh." Yeah. I know. Um and you don't want to bleed in the pulpit and you don't want to make it about you, but I also remember, it was either Nancy Hanna or Paul Walker who said at a Mockingbird conference like I t- I'm going to talk about myself because It's the only story I know is true. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and if we, you know, and Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, certainly talks about himself quite a bit in his letters. And they're letters, granted, you know, Chief of Sinners and, uh, you know, Romans 7 and all of that. So, um, yeah, I I guess I feel like there's a place to talk about yourself if you're doing it in this kind of way. It's not self aggrandizing you know, if it's, if it's, here's, here's what Jesus did for me. And probably not every week and yeah. yada, 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 but yeah. there's just, there's a power to testimony. Um, and I also think, I wonder, I was like, gosh, what if this guy was a pastor? Like, how would his, how would his congregation respond to this? Uh, like, would they, would they fall in love with him or would they, would they use it against him? <laughs> you uh-huh. know? Um, so there are yeah, a lot of things running around in my head about, I mean, beyond just the incredible power of the sermon, which I will, you know, like I said, there's about three lines from this I will never forget and will shamelessly steal for the rest of my ministry. Well, just about the nature of sort of preaching and ministry specifically.
1: I But I think the power in this is that it was not someone who was ordained. For me, that is the power because I think it is so easy for people— in the in the pews to. But he look, is
2: ordained. He clearly was ordained. He, yeah, he, I know what you mean. Like he didn't have hands laid on him, but he clearly like is consecrated for this ministry.
1: Totally. <laughs> but I mean, typically he's in the pew, and I think oftentimes people yes, in the pew, you. even when they hear our stories from the pulpit, they're like. Well, but, you know, of course you can have that theological lens on it, or of course you've come through it on some level, but to have somebody come up from the congregation and say, no, like, this is like, like, I am one of you, like, this is the land I live in and it is a land of great grief and pain and also great resurrection that, I mean, that for me was like, sometimes I think some of us priests just and pastors just need to sit down. Yeah. You know what I mean?
0: And you also, it becomes, it risks when, when you're professional at it, I mm-hmm. guess, it risks becoming a, a trope or a story that you rely on and you yeah. sort of get better at telling and the fact that this yeah. is so close and it's and it's weird. sort of a one-time thing. I mean, but mm-hmm. in the spirit of this, I mean, I'll, I I think I've said it before, but I've been on uh, pretty serious antidepressants Since I was Mm seventeen, I mean, like, and it's it's been a part of my life. Every time I've tried to go off, I sink into a deep, dark hole. And it's not, Mm. it's not um, woe is me. There's a lot of people out there who are helped by this sort of thing, and there's a lot of physiological elements to it. But when Mm -hmm. we talk about um, the real problems of life, the real problems are those that you cannot uh, uh, will your way out of. And yeah. um, that you, this is one of the reasons perhaps that shapes the Mockingbird perspective, but like this is why I'm drawn to talking about addiction, anxiety, these things that are overwhelming, these things that really, uh, that reveal the, that not just the, rea- not the reality of transcendence, but the reality of suffering that is um, larger than we are in our ability to manage and we need help and we need like profound help and that that help has arrived. I mean, this is um, that he can testify to that beauty in the midst of it. That's not sort of part of his disease. It's it's kind of found apart from his disease, but is informed by his despair. I I found it to be personally deeply, deeply moving. And I, I, every time, by the way, we have a person who gets uh, that I, at one of our conferences who gives just a testimony like Nicole Cliff did a couple years ago, Mm -hmm. people kind of go nuts. They love it. Mm -hmm. A non-contrived authentic testimony is a deep comfort to people. It's, it's when it's we we throw the baby out with the bathwater with this i i used to do sex drugs and rock and roll and then i met jesus and now i'm you know making healthy choices that's the kind of that's the the marketing that a lot of people who were brought up in that kind of 90s evangelicalism heard and that because we don't want that then we just refuse to talk about how god is actually at work in the here and now uh in people's lives and um and that's that's a deep sadness, because I think that the testimonies uh, is one of the reasons why I, I like to encourage uh, personal essays on Mockingbird. It's not the only thing we do, but it's if it's detached entirely from your experience, and I've been around theological, very, you know, confessionally, you know, um, uh, true or uh, sympathetic people, but it's all a major head trip and it never touches down on their actual lives. And so I'm yeah. always interested in where people, the rubber meets the road. And when, when it comes to the God who saves, when it comes to grace with a capital G, um, it's uh, very often we talk about people who are uh, who are slammed with depression or addiction or suffering and those are the places where that god is revealed to where they have nothing to contribute and god 100%. comes ev- with with everything and jesus is all of a sudden it's like the lights go on and they become uh, we become different people and we are converted uh, and we, we, we return to those moments. That's why we tell our testimony again, because I need to hear it.
1: Well, you know, it's like anytime somebody says, tell me about Mockingbird. What's Mockingbird? My first answer is always like, well, the, the first thing you should know is that it was started at the same church that AA was started at. Like, that's, it's like, that's our history. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Is like being a people who were, Holy who wanted to be in community with other people who knew they were absolutely hopelessly helpless. Like, that's where we started, you know? So
0: um yeah yeah well gerson i hope lots of people uh hear this and i let me just repeat that that last thing uh faith faith does not preclude doubt it consists of staking your life on the rumor of grace Mm,
1: it's so good at
0: the end of all our striving and longing we find not a force but a face i mean that's just that's the heart of the matter Praise God for that sermon. Thank you for sending it, Sarah. And thank you guys both for being here today. Soon, very soon, we're going to have a Faith and Doubt uh, episode of the podcast. Um, Ethan's working on that right now. But yeah, anything, any parting shots from either of you?
1: No, y'all register for Mockingbird Tyler there. I wanted to say that. Oh, yeah. It's coming
0: up. Normally, we will be doing that in February, not in April, because I don't want people to miss New York. Yes. But this was a special thing, because Matt McGill, who is our spirit animal. Um, is he? <laughs> <laughs> he is, he is going to be in in the Holy Land, uh, actually. <laughs> During the normal time But we didn't want to miss it So that's why it's April 5th and 6th And New York is April 25th through 27th And I don't know I'll
1: register It'll be good I'm excited
0: Come hang out with us We'd love to see you Bye 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 Toodles Thank you for listening Remember you can find us On the web at www.mbird.com and we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.